Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Joe, uh, one of the pastors here. And um, if you came to the Christmas Eve service, raise your hand if you had the stomach virus. Most of you still aren't here. We, we had a stomach virus that just kind of wiped out the church this week. So hopefully, if you didn't come to the Christmas Eve service, that was a good call on your part. So everybody's healthy and well. Um, well, today we have a special treat. Today's a, an exciting day and a sad day at the same time. Sean McGochran, who has really grown up in this church, has worked at the church office for the last five and a half years. I consider to be a dear friend. Uh, he is going to preach today. So that's the fun part. The sad part is today is his last day in this church because he's going to seminary um, to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is heading out very soon. So we're going to say goodbye to him today as well. After church today, we're going to have a reception for him with cupcakes and cookies just to uh, encourage Sean and thank him for all that he's done uh, for this church. He has served this church in many many ways, starting in his teen years, uh, helping out with Kids Cove. He's been a teacher. He's led college ministry here at the church. He's um, spent countless hours with our teen ministry, and uh, he's just been all around a servant extraordinaire. And the most commendable thing about Sean is he is a godly man. He loves the Lord. I've gotten to know him really well in the last five and a half years. We spent a lot of time together, working together, and um, you are going to hear from a quality, God-fearing man today. So can we welcome Sean as he comes up? Well, it's, I'm extremely grateful and humbled to get to do this today. It's, uh, it's been a blessing to grow up in this church, uh, like Joe said. I've been, uh, this church has been my church since probably, I think I was about five at the time, and I just can't even begin to express how much this church has meant to me. It's been a blessing uh, to serve and worship alongside so many of you over the years. Uh, many of you who've been in the church since, uh, since the early days, you guys have been such a, an incredibly godly example to me as I've grown up here. And um, yeah, I'm just humbled by this opportunity to get to preach God's word to you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, Bible app on your phone, something like that, if you would turn with me to the book of Matthew to chapter 5. So a little bit about me. Um, I'm a big fan of creative TV shows, and one TV show that I've enjoyed binge-watching over the past couple years is the Netflix series Stranger Things, which uh, if, you're, if you're, some of you, I guess, are familiar with that. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, basically it's kind of one of those like suspenseful sci-fi shows. It's got a lot of homages to 80s films and pop culture, which I guess I can't fully appreciate because I wasn't alive in the 80s, but still a good show. Enjoy it. And uh, the show takes place in this small town in the state of Indiana. And starting in the first season, as the title suggests, some strange things start happening. People start disappearing. There's this monster that keeps appearing, going around. And eventually, what the characters in the show come to realize is that there's a parallel dimension that's come in contact with our world, a realm that's unseen, that's similar to our world and yet alien. And the characters in the show, they come up with a name for it. They call this the Upside Down. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at the beginning of a passage that many of us are probably very familiar with. It's Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And in the opening 
to this sermon, Jesus reveals that he's brought a type of upside-down kingdom to earth, a kingdom that's unseen as of now, that is similar to our reality and yet alien, a kingdom that transcends our world and breaks into our lives. This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, this is one of the key themes in Matthew's gospel. And the Sermon on the Mount, it serves as almost kind of a kingdom manifesto. It's a declaration designed to tell those who would follow Jesus how we are to live in light of this kingdom, which is both present among us and is coming in fullness in the future. The kingdom of heaven, it's an upside down kingdom because in it, what is often despised by the world is valued by God and leads to true blessing for those who are its citizens. So let's turn now, Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. It says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great, in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first thing that Jesus tells us about the kingdom of heaven that he is bringing to earth is he tells us about the blessings for kingdom citizens. He tells us how people can become citizens of this kingdom and what blessing these citizens will experience in their lives. Of these promises of blessings are often called the Beatitudes, which is a word that means blessed or happy. And each of these Beatitudes, it names a characteristic which marks kingdom citizens, which is then followed by a corresponding blessing. In other words, if we are marked by these characteristics of kingdom citizens, we can know that these promised blessings are for us, that we can experience true happiness. So we've got eight of these Beatitudes. Now, I want to take a second to talk to the kids here so, so we know, as we talked about before, this is our fifth Sunday. Instead of having Kids Cove, we have you kids ages five through grade six join in with the rest of us this Sunday. If you are between age five and grade six, could you guys raise your hands? Yeah, so we are so happy you guys are here with us. Thank you for joining us. We want you guys to know you're part of our church family. Yeah, we're, I'm so grateful that you guys are here. Really want to say in advance, appreciate you guys paying attention, listening. And I was actually wondering, Wonder if you guys could help me out a little bit this morning. So we got, we have eight of these Beatitudes that we're going to look at, and I thought a good way to remember them, I came up with eight words that go with these eight Beatitudes. I was wondering if you kids could help me out with remembering these. You guys think you could do that? Yes? No? You guys think you could do that? All right. So here are the words. We can go ahead and show those words. First word is poor, mourn, meek, hungry, merciful, pure, peacemaker, and persecuted. So easy, got these eight words, easy way to remember them. If you take the first letter of every word and line them up, it spells pum, pum. Okay, maybe that won't help. Here's what we'll do. How about we assign a word to each of you guys, but what class you're in in Kids Cove? So five-year-olds, who's five years old or in kindergarten? Raise your hands. Okay, here's your word. I want you to remember the first word, poor. You guys got that? Okay, first graders, your word is going to be mourn. Remember, mourn. Second graders, 
your word is going to be meek. Got it? Uh, third graders, your word is hungry. Remember, hungry. Fourth graders, you guys are a little older. I think we, can you guys handle two words, fourth graders? Yeah? Okay, we'll give you two words. We're going to give you merciful and pure. And finally, fifth and sixth graders, we'll give you guys two words as well. We'll give you peacemaker and persecuted. You guys can remember those? You guys remember those? Yeah? Okay. So let's test your memory. Five-year-olds, what was your word? Shout it out. Poor, good job. Yes, the first one is in verse three. We find blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this first promise of blessing is so important because it tells us how we can become kingdom citizens. In order to be citizens, we must first be poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, for a person to be poor in spirit, they must recognize that they are spiritually destitute of anything in themselves in which they can boast. It means recognizing that we don't have it all together, that we're not good enough to earn God's approval, that we need God's grace. See, only the poor in spirit can receive God's kingdom because only the poor in spirit can understand the concept of grace and can admit that they are completely dependent on God's grace to receive his forgiveness and his blessing. Jesus told this story in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing off by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This story is so scandalous because at the end of the day, it's not the pious religious leader who says all the right things and boasts in his resume of good deeds, but it's the guy who was collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, who in that context, he would have been viewed as a traitor to his people and a social pariah. It's this guy who gets right with God. And the reason he was able to get right with God is because he recognized There was nothing in him that could make him acceptable to God. This is where we first see the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Just as in Jesus' time, we all live in a culture where we value self-made men and women. We base our identity in our resume or our education status or our our strong work ethic. Both inside and outside the church, there's a tendency for people to pride themselves in their moralism or their good deeds. When it comes to our relationship with God— and our access into his kingdom, it's not those who pride themselves in their hard work or their good deeds who receive the kingdom, but it is those who recognize that they are incapable of receiving God's blessings apart from grace. This upside-down countercultural message of grace, this is one that we all need to hear and understand. For you kids, for you teens, you need to know being a good church kid is not enough. If you're new here with us this morning, you're new to the whole church thing, maybe you feel like your life's in a rut and you're trying to get right with God, we're so happy you're here, but you need to know that the answer you're seeking is not to turn your life around in your own strength or by your own willpower. And for all of us who've been in the church for a while, we too need to be reminded again and again that what makes us right and acceptable before God has nothing to do with us being better than people outside the church. 
God's kingdom is not given to those who think they are good enough. It's given to those who know they aren't good enough and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This takes us into our next blessing. So first graders, let's see how much you guys remember. Do you guys remember what your word was? Mourn, good job. So the second one is mourn. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This next promise is a blessing, a promise of blessing of healing to those who are mourning. But what are we supposed to mourn as kingdom citizens? Well, first of all, in keeping with the previous mark of being poor in spirit, Jesus is speaking here about mourning over our sin. The fact is we have all failed in some way or another to love God and love others the way we should. And our sin is not something that God can just simply brush over. It is a big deal. It causes a rift in our relationship with God and it makes us worthy of God's judgment. When we truly recognize how bad our sin is, the appropriate response is to mourn. But this doesn't mean that we're supposed to wallow in condemnation or keep beating ourselves up for things we've done wrong. It means we recognize what we've done wrong and then we repent, finding comfort in the hope of forgiveness that we have in Jesus. See, the message that Jesus preached was called the gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel means good news. So this is the good news of the kingdom. The bad news is that we are all sinners who deserve God's judgment. But when we understand that, that makes the good news all that much better. We can truly appreciate the good news when we understand the bad news. I I love how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I don't know about you guys, but I know my tendency is to think, oh, my sin's bad, but it's not that bad. But this kind of thinking, it diminishes God's grace. It's only when I truly understand and mourn just how bad I am apart from God's grace that I can truly understand just how mind-blowing God's grace is. So we mourn our sins knowing that we will experience the comfort of God's forgiveness. But that's not the only thing we mourn. The promise of comfort in God's kingdom is also the comfort of restoration for those who mourn that we live in a broken world. I think we can all agree that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's sickness, there's suffering, there's injustice and grief and loss. And these things are all a part of the fallout of our sin as a human race. But in God's kingdom, there is hope that those who mourn this broken world can experience restoration when the kingdom comes in its fullness See, God's kingdom, it's come, but it's not yet come in fullness. Theologians like to call this the already not yet reality of God's kingdom. God's restoration of his world is not yet finished. We still see the brokenness. We still mourn. We still feel hurt. But even now, we can find comfort because we know that God will restore what has been broken. If not now, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in power. You know, I know this has been... This has been a very difficult year for many of us. For us as a church family, we've walked through a number of very difficult, challenging, tragic situations just in the past year. I know many of you guys personally this year, you've walked through some very dark times, things I can't even imagine. Gosh, even some of you kids, some of you teens, I know you guys have gone through things in your short lives more difficult than anything I've ever experienced. And It'd be wrong for me to stand up here and just say, oh, things will be all right. Focus on the positive. Things will get better. Because those are just empty platitudes. That's not 
true hope. Our true hope is that even if things do not turn out all right, and even if darkness doesn't appear to be lifting anytime soon, God's kingdom will prevail, and Jesus will one day restore everything that is broken. In the book of Revelation, we get this picture of what will happen when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we mourn for now, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope, because in Jesus we will be comforted, and he will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. Okay, moving on to the next one. Second graders, do you guys remember your word? Meek, good job. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does it mean to be meek? Does it mean just being completely passive or being a pushover? Well, I, love, I love how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines meekness. He says, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It is my attitude toward myself, and it is an expression of that relationship to others. You know, whether it's on our resumes or our social media posts or in our conversations or even how we dress or how we act, we like to make ourselves look good. But in God's kingdom, it is not those who assert themselves and make themselves look good who will reign, but it is those who have a true view of themselves, who understand their need for grace, and then who act accordingly in their interactions with others. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 30, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Imagine how different our church would be if every single one of us lived that way, if we all applied this, if we truly lived as people humbled by God's grace, and then we let that humility flavor our interaction with others. Okay, third graders, you guys remember your word? Hungry, good job. So you know, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, one thing I love about our church is after we dismiss, a lot of you guys don't take off right away. I mean, you guys actually like, like hanging out with each other and fellowshipping. We actually have to kick some of you guys out of the building on Sunday afternoons because you like each other that much. So I've been the building lockup person for a number of years, and over the years that I've done this, something usually I hear about once a Sunday uh, when the family's hanging around, uh, usually a kid or maybe a teen who doesn't have their driver's license or doesn't have a car and is stranded here, hear one of you say, Mom, Dad, can we go? I'm starving! Now, if you've ever said that, I'm sure you're not actually dying of hunger, but I get you. I mean, I'm a clock eater too. If I don't have lunch or dinner at a certain time, I start getting hungry. I'd need something to snack on. And it's a natural thing for us to feel hunger. I mean, that's something that, it's a desire God created us to feel. I mean, if we think about it, otherwise, I guess we'd just like forget to eat and starve ourselves. That would kind of stink. It's something that God's given us. But Jesus tells us, that he wants us to feel a different kind of hunger. There's a different kind of hunger that kingdom citizens should feel. 
He wants us to desire righteousness the same way we desire food. We should long to see God's righteousness in our lives where we walk in his ways and love what he loves. If I'm honest though, I don't always have a natural longing or desire for God's righteousness. So how do we, how do we develop a desire for righteousness? Well, it starts with seeking God in faith, with believing that we were created to find fulfillment in him and him alone, and then seeking to define our lives by loving him and loving the people around us who are made in his image. If we make this our purpose in life, we will experience true fulfillment. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, fourth graders, let's see. Do you guys remember your first word? Good job, guys. God has shown so much grace to us. As Mark said last week in his message, God's grace is his free, merciful, undeserved kindness given through Jesus. Our acceptance before God is based on his mercy and grace alone, and it is completely free to us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. However, Jesus is very clear that those who mercifully receive salvation and entrance into the kingdom will themselves produce the fruit of mercy toward others. You know, this is a truth I think many of us tend to neglect. I mean, we like talking about God's mercy toward us, how he loves us even when we don't deserve it. But we're oftentimes not so quick to talk about how we are supposed to show that same kind of mercy toward others. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus describes how mercy works in the kingdom of heaven. He tells a story about this guy who was forgiven a debt of billions of dollars by his boss. But then he goes out and he starts beating on his coworker who owed him a few thousand bucks. Now, obviously, that's not a small debt, but that was nothing compared to the debt that he'd already been forgiven. The story ends with this guy being dragged back into his boss, and his boss throws, he hears about how he treated his coworker, and he throws the guy into prison, telling him, You're bringing this on yourself. You were offered mercy, but because you, don't, you can't give mercy, you're unable to receive mercy. And Jesus ends the story by saying, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This could be a hard truth for us to swallow, but Jesus is clear that in order to receive the mercy found in the gospel, we ourselves must walk in mercy toward others. If that's not clear enough, already for you. Jesus makes this even clearer later in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 verses 14 to 15 where he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this isn't saying that we have to earn God's mercy because it wouldn't be mercy in that case, but it is saying that we can only receive mercy if we have that posture toward others, and that if we truly understand the depth of God's mercy toward us, that will produce mercy and kindness and forgiveness toward other people, even those who are most difficult to love, because God's mercy toward us is so much greater. Okay, fourth graders, what was your guys' second word? Pure, good job. Verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This might be one of my favorite blessings that we can receive as kingdom citizens. I mean, while God's kingdom, it brings the blessings of restoration and justice and comfort, the greatest blessing that the king of the kingdom is that we can dwell in the presence of God. This is the promise that we were celebrating over Christmas of God coming down among us in Jesus. When Matthew wrote earlier about the birth of Jesus, he quotes the prophet Isaiah who wrote, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Throughout the Bible, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sin, through the history of Israel, when we have the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple, the narrative of Scripture tells us that we uh, shows humanity as being separated from God because of our sin. Because God is pure and holy, he cannot tolerate sin in his presence, and therefore we cannot enter his presence. However, in the kingdom, that effect is undone through God coming to dwell among us again. Mark preached on Christmas Sunday from John 1:14, which says that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That term, Jesus dwelt among us, it literally translates to he tabernacled among us. All that God had instructed the people of Israel to do in the Old Testament, from the sacrifices to building the tabernacle where God could dwell among his people yet was separated from his people, to the need for the priests to serve as a go-between between God and his people. All of this was leading to the culmination of God coming down to dwell among us in and through Jesus Christ. With the kingdom of God transcending our world, God himself has transcended our space with his presence. Again, this reality of God with us, it's an already not yet reality. Because God's, he's not yet visibly present among us, and he won't be until Jesus returns in power. But until then, God is physically invisible, but the invisible reality of God with us is revealed right now through Jesus to those who are pure in heart. And when Jesus speaks about being pure in heart, he's not just talking about mere outward righteousness. In Matthew 23, Jesus actually condemned the religious leaders for having only outward purity, which ironically left them blind toward God. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean." If you're trying to clean your life up on the outside, trying to, look the good par- trying to look the part of a good churchgoer or a good citizen, that's not going to bring you into a state of relationship with God. Outward purity doesn't matter to God if it's not accompanied by inward purity. Only inward purity will lead to us truly seeing and knowing God. In contrast to the blind religious leaders with their outward morality, in chapter 16, we read how Peter beheld Jesus as the Son of God through the work of God in his heart. When Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Only God can cleanse our hearts so that we can truly see and know Jesus. Our sin separates us from relationship with God, but Jesus makes it possible for that stain to be washed away so that we can know him. So if you've trusted in Jesus to make you clean, you have this relational access to God. Though we cannot see him in full, we can see him in part with the eyes of our heart that have been cleansed. Because of Jesus, we dwell 24-7 in the presence of God, and we can know him deeply and intimately. However, the fact that God is with us, while that's true across the board for all who trust in Jesus, our experience of this truth, it can vary based on our pursuit of purity. So the Bible talks about both positional purity which is based 100% on what Jesus has done and is true for all Christians. And then it talks about practical purity, which is how we each, through the work of God in our hearts, seek to become more and more like Jesus. So God with us 
is based on our positional purity in Jesus, but the extent to which each of us sees God with us is based in part on our practical purity. Whenever we sin, that doesn't cut off our relationship with God, but just as in any other relationship where we hurt the other person, it affects the relationship. This is why it matters how we live as Christians. If you aren't pursuing purity in your speech, in your thought life, in your browser history, in your motives, it doesn't mean that God will stop loving you, but it does mean you're hindering yourself from seeing and knowing God in a deeper way. So if your relationship with God feels shallow right now, the answer isn't do more to make God like you. The answer is be more like Jesus. Seek to love what he loves, hate what he hates. And as you pursue that purity, he will reveal himself to you. Okay, fifth and sixth graders, let's see how good your guys' memory was. What was the first word I gave you? Anybody remember? Peacemaker, good job. So verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Does it mean just being a pacifist or somebody who's always trying to please other people? No, Jesus is getting at something deeper than just trying to keep the peace. When he uses the word peace, he's talking about the Hebrew concept of shalom, which refers to wholeness and restoration and flourishing. In, In essence, this is the state of God's kingdom. When we hope for God's kingdom to come in fullness, we are hoping for shalom, to see what is broken restored, to see human beings made whole and flourishing. So for us to seek shalom, that means that we want to see wholeness and flourishing in our lives and in our communities. I mean, we can see the brokenness of the world when we just look at our own communities, whether it's the increase of drug addiction or college students seeking the emptiness of hedonism, whether it's broken homes, broken relationships, or even just our, our uh, inability as a culture to have a civil discussion with people we disagree with. But look at the hope that we as kingdom citizens have to offer a broken world. Only Jesus can bring the shalom of God's kingdom into Indiana County, but we can point people around us who are living in darkness to Jesus through our words and our deeds. And for all of us who seek the shalom that comes through Jesus, we get to enjoy the blessings of being children of God. If your life today doesn't feel at peace, hope in Jesus and know that you can come to God as a perfect, loving father. All right, fifth and sixth graders, what was the last word? Anybody remember? Persecuted. Good job, guys. So verses 10 through 12 tells us, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this blessing of the kingdom of, for kingdom citizens, this is the one that's tempting to skip. I mean, how crazy is this? Jesus is telling us to rejoice when other people bash us and even persecute us for following him. But remember, we are citizens of an upside-down kingdom. If we follow our king, we're going against the flow. We're going to live counterculturally to those around us. And people don't naturally like other people who are different from them. In order for us to be kingdom citizens, we have to be prepared for opposition. Now, let's be clear here. I think we can say that for most of us living in the United States, most of what we encounter can't really be called persecution. I mean, I don't think you can label being called a name on Facebook persecution when we look at believers in other countries, even just thinking 
the past few weeks, I was reading in the news about a man named Wang Yi, who is a pastor and human rights activist. He was arrested in China for serving the Lord. You know, compared to that, at worst, what we, most of us experience is, is more along the lines of cultural marginalization. It used to be culturally accepted and even beneficial to call yourself a Christian, but now it's not. But for us as Christians, though, our response shouldn't be to get bitter and angry and antagonistic toward unbelievers because we might feel like we're losing our country. And while we shouldn't become passive around injustice, we also shouldn't be surprised when people oppose us for following Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the, uh, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Those who follow Jesus will experience the same opposition and persecution that he faced. And our response shouldn't be bitterness or retaliation, but hope in our citizenship in God's kingdom. Because for all the many incredible blessings we often take for granted living in America, it's not the kingdom of God. It'll one day pass away, just like the empires of Rome and Greece and Babylon. Our hope is not in getting Christianity to become culturally accepted again, but rather that even if things keep getting worse, even if one day it's illegal for us to gather together as a church like we are today, even if we face imprisonment and torture, even death, if we endure faithfully and joyfully for our King, we will receive the reward of eternal life and glory in his kingdom. So we've seen the blessings of kingdom citizens. But before we close, I want us to look briefly at the witness of kingdom citizens and how we as kingdom citizens are called to live in response to these blessings. This is where the rubber meets the road. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand that it gives its light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I don't want us to leave today without recognizing that all the blessings we've just covered, they're not meant for us to keep to ourselves. We are meant to then bless others through our witness. In the book of Genesis, when God calls Abraham to be the father of his chosen people, he tells him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We as God's people are called, are blessed to be a blessing to others. That's what it means to be salt and light. We are the salt that's meant to influence the world. You know, today we usually think of primarily of salt as something to flavor our food, something I probably have too much of in my diet and might be slowly killing me. But in the ancient world, salt was also associated with being a preservative that slowed the decay of food. And that's the role that we play in the world. Well, we shouldn't imagine that we ourselves can bring the kingdom into the world. We can act as a positive influence on the world. But this can only happen if we retain our saltiness, if we remain faithful witnesses. If our lives look no different from the world around us, we are not influencing it for God's glory. 
Only when we embrace the upside down nature of the kingdom can we hope to influence our families, our neighborhoods, and our world for the kingdom. We are also the light meant to reveal truth to a world in darkness. Matthew, in speaking of Jesus' birth, again, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, who wrote that Jesus would be a great light to shine to those living in the darkness of sin. For us as kingdom citizens, we follow in the way of our king by bringing illumination to the world through our God-honoring works. There's a book that's called The Road, which is by author Cormac McCarthy, and he tells this story about this post-apocalyptic world where most of humanity has forsaken morality and given in to evil and violence. And in the midst of this nightmarish world, he has these two characters, a father and a son. And this father and son, they're not only seeking to survive in this harsh world, but they're also seeking to continue to live nobly. The father often speaks to the son and tells him that we carry the fire, which means they seek to live nobly, even when everything that is around them is dark and evil. For us as kingdom citizens, when we live as kingdom citizens, we are that light in the darkness. We are the city on a hill showing God's glory. We carry the fire. As we enter 2019, my prayer for Saving Grace Church is that every member here, whether you're five or whether you're 75, you would seek to be that light to the world, individually, but more importantly, corporately as a church family. I mean, think about it. We all who know Jesus, we are all here today because we all share the hope that God has saved us out of darkness by calling us into the light of his eternal kingdom. This is what makes us different from the rest of the world. And this is what qualifies us to share that message of hope with others. So my challenge to you, Saving Grace Church, is that each of you would carry the fire in 2019 in Indiana County, in Westmoreland, in Armstrong, in Cambria County, and wherever else the Lord calls you, here, Uganda, with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates. Remember the blessings that you have as kingdom citizens and be that light who points others to the kingdom. Worship team, if you guys want to come on back up. As we're transitioning back into a time of worship, I want to end with this. I want to close on this note. As kingdom citizens, our lives and our witness to others should be marked above all by humility. After all, we are citizens of an upside-down kingdom which leads down toward humility and away from worldly greatness. Jesus said in Matthew, but in doing so, we follow the upside-down way of our king who first humbled himself for us. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And calling us to live upside down lives and embrace humility, Jesus calls us to do something he first did for us. Though Jesus was rich, he became poor. In his mourning, he was known as a man of sorrows. Though he was God and deserving of exaltation, he became meek. He experienced hunger and thirst. He showed mercy rather than judgment towards sinners. He was pure, though all the powers of hell sought to tempt him towards sin. Though we were enemies of God, he came bringing peace. And though he is the rightful king of the world, he endured persecution and the ultimate humiliation at the cross. And he did it for us that we might enter into the blessing of his kingdom. Our blessing comes through his humiliation. So our response should be to humble ourselves by blessing others by, and by, above all, seeking to glorify with our lives, our king, 
who died for us and is now exalted over all powers, all rulers, all authorities, and all kingdoms, and who will reign forever. Let's stand and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this hope that we have in you. Lord, all these blessings that we've read about today, all these blessings that you have promised to us who you have made kingdom citizens, we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray, I pray for this church, Lord. I pray for every single citizen of your kingdom here that they would be a faithful witness to you. Lord, wherever you have us in the future, may we be that light in the darkness. May we be that salt that influences those around us for you. And Lord Jesus, above all, God, make us humble. Draw us to humility. May we remember the grace you have shown toward us by first humbling yourself. And Lord Jesus, we give you praise and we will worship you for all eternity. To you be the glory, God. Amen.